The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Pastor Tom Nicholas uh, uh, will preach the word. Tom and I have been friends for many years, and for, for quite a number of years, he was my senior pastor. And uh, Tom and Linda are a blessing to Becky and I. I remember one occasion when a former elder of Westminster, Fred Gaston, uh, saw uh, two of our pastors in the service at Reformed Presbyterian Church. Dr. Rogers and I and our spouses. And Fred asked the question, what's happening at Westminster? <laughs> well, of course, we, we love to go here, Pastor Nicholas, and uh, worship there, as we do many other of the uh, churches in our local area in the uh, PCA. But it's a joy to uh, shortly welcome Tom to the pulpit. It's good to be with you uh, again this evening. We continue to pray for... Westminster Presbyterian Church and for your ministries here. They're vital, they're important, they're a blessing to this area and to our entire region. We're also praying for your pastoral search and that God will guide you and bless you in that. That's a a key activity, and I know you're praying as a church, but there are others of us who are upholding you in in the same way. I, uh, I bring you greetings from our elders, and from our congregation at uh, Reformed Presbyterian uh, Church. Tonight we're going to be looking at uh, the last part of Zephaniah, and I've chosen to read uh, from Zephaniah uh, chapter 3. If you don't know where that is, just find Matthew and then go back a little bit, and you'll stumble upon it, but it's a fairly brief book. And I'm going to begin with verse 9, and I'll be reading through verse 17. And verse 17 is the text from which I will preach tonight. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day you will not be put to shame, For all the wrongs that you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. 
For the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. This is God's word to us. Uh, Pray with me, please. Father, we pray that you would take this uh, word. Uh, May your Holy Spirit be the surgeon in our hearts uh, to both confront us and comfort us with your gospel because it is life indeed. So feed your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the June of 2007, Sports Illustrated published an article entitled, The Beautiful Losers, An Oral History of the Philadelphia Phillies. Now, I'm a Phillies fan, so I was automatically interested in that because I grew up in the Philadelphia area. And up on top, it said the countdown to 10,000. The article begins by saying the existentialist Samuel Beckett exhorted, fail better. And no professional sports team has ever failed better with greater frequency than the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, And when this was written, it says that through Sunday in the the month of June, whenever this came out, the tragic number stood at 9,991. The next most prolific losers were the Braves at 9,677. The Phillies' lack of success, the article says, has been monumental. From 1918 through 48, that's 30 years, they only had one winning season. Between 1920 and 1945, they lost 100 or more games 12 times. Over 27 seasons from 1919 through 1945, they had 16 last-placed finishes. During World War II, owner Bob Carpenter tried to shed the Phillies' loser image by renaming his club the Blue Jays, but students at John Hopkins where sports teams use that mascot, that name, objected on the grounds that the change would be demeaning to birds. Um, On the Phillies' low-light tape, of course, was their most fantastic, and these are all spelled P-H, free fall, known as the Philly flop. Up by six and a half games in 1964, with only 12 remaining, the team lost 10 in a row, and the pennant. Asked in 1976 what he remembered about the implosion, manager Gene Mock muttered, only every pitch. Um, I I still have the article if you want to read it. Uh, One of the quotes that fascinated me uh, was just from a fan. They had quotes from a bunch of different people in the article, and this was from Harold Herman, who was a 90-year-old fan in 2007. And he said this, that... Vince DiMaggio was on the team, Um, not Joe, Vince. And he said, Vince DiMaggio led the National League in strikeouts that season despite missing all of September with an injury. It figures we got Vince and not Joe or Dom. When brothers played in the majors, the the Phillies usually wound up with the ones who produced less. We had Harry Kowaleski instead of Stan, Irish Musil instead of Bob, Frank Torrey instead of Joe, Ken Brett instead of George, Mike Maddox instead of Greg, Rick Serhoff instead of BJ, and Jeremy Giambi instead of Jason. If there had been a Zeppo Alou, the Phillies would probably have signed him. 
That's kind of how the article goes, and you get the feel, if you're a sports fan, of what that is like. I am happy to let you know, in case you didn't, that the next year we did win the World Series uh, for at least the second time in my lifetime. Now, what I want to tell you tonight is this, that the Israelites are the Phillies of the Old Testament. They are the beautiful losers. In Beckett's words, they have failed better than anyone else. Except it's not about their athleticism. It's about their spirituality and their utter inability to keep God's covenant. Their 10,000 losses concern their continuous disloyalty to God and His covenant love over and over and over throughout the ages. There were 10,000 failures as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness after being delivered from Egypt in such a gracious and miraculous way. There were 10,000 losses during that 400 period known as the Judges when there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and they surely did. And when they finally do have a king at their own request, their losses are probably 100,000 plus. Over and over again, even with the kings they wanted to have, they break the covenant that God made with them. Now, there's a few bright shining lights, and you know that as you read the Old Testament, and they're found in people like Abraham and Moses and Gideon and David and Solomon, Hezekiah, uh, Josiah, Elijah. But none of these are perfect people or perfect deliverers in any way, and they serve a people whose hearts are rebellious and wandering. Zephaniah's prophecy from where we read this evening, comes about a hundred years after the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And it's written after about another hundred years of 10,000 failures in the southern kingdom, Judah, which is on the cusp of its own destruction and captivity. Like most prophetic books, it's filled with all kinds of dire warnings, impending catastrophes, destruction, the prophets write to the people of Israel like an unfaithful wife. It's not just Hosea who does that. And they literally bring charges from God Jehovah against the people, and they remind the Israelites of their prenup agreement with God, which was signed in blood at the foot of Sinai, the covenant that they agreed to, and that's repeated again in Deuteronomy. Like most prophetic books, there's always a ray of hope. And we cling to those verses, don't we? If we read through the prophets, we're like, oh no, oh no, ooh, what does that mean? Where's that country? Oh no, ooh, and then there's this ray of light, and we underline it, and we cling to it, because it's one of those rays of hope that we look to and that we need in our own life. And it's not that those other things that were said aren't important, but our hearts tend to latch towards those. And of course, verse 17 is one of those. The Lord is with you. He's mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and rejoice over you with singing. As we look at this verse tonight, verse 17, we're going to look at it from this perspective. We are the beautiful losers as well. We are the beautiful losers. God is the one who has endured 
our 10,000 losses, our countless sins, but He moves towards us, towards any who humble themselves and embrace His promises in faith. And we need to hear the hope found in these words because a beautiful loser is actually a person who knows that they're undeserving, who knows that they're unworthy, they're humbled by their sins, and all they can do is cling to Jesus for forgiveness, for His grace. That's why it's beautiful. That's why it's beautiful. The Gospel is beautiful because God meets losers like us. He turns our ashes into beauty. Three things that are found that beautiful losers can rejoice in. Three things. Number one, we rejoice in the presence of God. Verse 17 begins by saying, the Lord your God is with you. Now, you have good pastors here. You have good teachers and preachers. And you know that the story of the Bible is actually, from cover to cover, from beginning to end, is the story of God's presence. I will be with you. Where was God in the beginning with Adam and Eve? He was with them. He was in fellowship with them. His presence was right there in this garden world that He had entrusted to Adam and to Eve, And then came the sin and the fall. They were cast out of His presence. They were east of Eden. And God in history, as we read through the Scriptures, provides a way for His people to be with Him. It starts out in provisional ways, like that tabernacle on the desert floor. Okay, Surrounded by all the other tents, but God is there. And then it turns into the temple itself, which Ezekiel names the Lord is there. Because you see, the the God of the universe, Jehovah, has come and He dwells with His people. Okay, So that's really the Gospel. That's the flow of the Old Testament. And of course, that is fulfilled in Jesus Himself. You may have heard the story of Father Damien. Father Damien... Uh, ministered on a small Hawaiian island that was filled with lepers. There were only lepers there. And he went to live there among them. And over the years, he sat with them, talked with them, prayed with them. He started a school. He even made coffins for those who died just to give them dignity as human beings in their death. But he wasn't careful about how close he got to them and eating with them. And he came so close amongst them that one day he stood up to preach and he began his sermon by saying, We lepers. Jesus came to this earth in our skin, our flesh and bones, Our DNA, He came so close, He lived under the curse, took our disease, bore our sin upon Himself because He was with us in that way. Which is why the angel announces in Matthew 1 to Joseph that they will call Him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Beautiful losers. Rejoice in this, 
Emmanuel, God with us. And because God is with us, he is able to save us from our sins, which is the other name of Jesus. The Lord saves. The Lord saves. And that leads to our second point here of what we can rejoice in. We can rejoice in the fact that our God is not just with us, but that he is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. We rely not only on his presence as he brings to us salvation, but we also rely on his power because we are helpless, but he is not. He is able. He is mighty to save. If anyone knows about God being mighty to save, it was Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a descendant, apparently, of Hezekiah. And we know what Hezekiah did in Jerusalem. One of the things he did during his reign was conducted that amazing engineering fate that linked a portion of Jerusalem with a necessary spring so that if they were ever invaded, surrounded by enemies, there would still be water within the city. In 1977, I had the privilege of walking through Hezekiah's tunnel. And it reminds us of that time when Sennacherib's lieutenant shows up at the gates of Jerusalem He mocks and humiliates the Israelites, God's people, and he exhorts them to surrender, or else many awful things would happen. Isaiah and King Hezekiah go to the temple, and they just lay it out before the Lord in the house of prayer. And the Lord's basic statement to them, among many things, is he will not enter the city. He will not enter enter the city, Sennacherib. The next morning, the angel of the Lord came and 190,000 people died. Dead, out there on the field, out there on the plain, out there in the valleys. The army was dead. He's mighty to save. Interesting, I had the privilege of being in the British Museum And there were some things I wanted to see there from Old Testament history. And uh, it was on one of my uh, mission trips with uh, Matt and Jen Irvin. And day off, I hit the British Museum. And I stood in, in Sennacherib's throne room the king who was invading at the time of Hezekiah. And, and a throne room is set up with these probably 15 foot, 20 foot high relief. Um, uh, pictures of all of their battles and all their victories. And so you can go around the room, and I couldn't make everything out, but fortunately the museum had said, well, this one is about this, and this one's about that. Went all around the room. And the last one I came to was Lachish, which is about 10 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Because the lieutenant of Sennacherib had come all the way up to Jerusalem to say, hey, you know what we did in Lachish? That's about to happen to you. It's interesting that that's the last relief that there is. You read that Sennacherib returned. Of course, they don't have a relief about this, but he returned in humiliation, and uh, he was assassinated by one of his own uh, family members. The Lord is mighty to save. Psalm 46 celebrates this, not just that God is a mighty fortress, um, 
our refuge and our strength, but it also celebrates him in the second half as a mighty warrior who goes forth from the city, okay? And he burns the shield, uh, burns the, the, the bow and the arrow, and he shatters the shield and the, and the spear with fire and claims himself as the Lord who is over all. So God is not just with us, but he is able to do mighty things as a warrior. And that's who Jesus is. He's our warrior. He went and fought a battle we can't fight. He went and won a battle that we couldn't even begin to think of how we might even be able to fight it. Jesus won that battle for us over sin and over death. The Lord saves, not just from our enemies, not just from bad people. He doesn't just save me from people who are stronger than me, so to speak, or from difficult circumstances that I feel that I can't face. But mainly, the Lord saves me from me. He saves me from me. The consequences of my 10,000 losses. And He takes a loser like me. And He somehow, through Jesus, makes me beautiful. Now, Emmanuel refers to the presence of God, God with us. Um, This second thing says that he will save his people from their sins. That's a statement of power from sin and from its consequences. One of my, I don't have a life verse, by the way. Pete, what's your life verse? I don't know. There's too many. But I love Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins... Oh, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins, and that's what Jesus does. He comes and He does exactly what the psalmist celebrates in Psalm 130. He is mighty to save us in that way. Two most powerful things He did. He willingly laid down His life to redeem us. He willingly carried my sin and my sorrow. And secondly, He rose again. He succumbed to death and weakness. And then He defeats death itself in great power so that even if we die, Jesus says, we will live if we are in Him. Do you know who He saves? He saves beautiful losers who are willing to humble themselves and to admit that that is what they are. That is what we are. And we cling to Jesus for who He is and all of His promises. And we don't do that just once and then we move on to something else with Jesus. That's kind of the essence of our faith and repentance on a daily basis is that I go to the Jesus, my Savior, who saved me from my sins and I confess my sins and I put my trust in Him and I do that on a daily basis as I live and I walk with Him. Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, which with... I'm sure you are familiar, and the Pharisee was so glad 
to declare publicly that he was not like the others, and especially that uh, tax collector standing or, or kneeling over there. I'm, you know, I'm so glad I'm not like that. And of course, the publican is what? He's the one who w- wouldn't even look up to heaven. The Lord doesn't save the proud because the proud are not right with God because they have no need of God. They're too proud to admit they have a need. Okay? But we know, as beautiful losers, that we need our Maker and our Redeemer to bring us back into a relationship with Him. So which are you? Are you a Pharisee? Or are you a publican? Interesting that that issue of pride comes up in our passage back in verse 11. He says, I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty or full of yourself on my holy mountain. Trust in the Lord for what he brings to us. The final thing that we see here is absolutely stunning. It's amazing. Uh, The third thing is that he he says this, he will take great delight in you, he'll quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. We can rejoice as beautiful losers in his presence, in his power, but we can also rejoice in his love for us. He delights in you, he quiets you with his love, and he rejoices over you with singing. First of all, it says here that he delights in you. This is not uh, the word for... uh, Covenant, or it's not the word chesed, which relates to his covenant love or his promised love. This is a different word here. It's the word ahava, which means affectionate delight. It's the language of a mother or a father. It's the language of Jacob for Rachel. It's the language of, of, of Jacob the father for Joseph and Benjamin. It's the language of Jonathan's deep friendship with David. He delights in us. When I was in seminary at Westminster, uh, we lived in an apartment complex that had a... uh, uh, It's like U-shaped, almost horseshoe-shaped with an opening, so we had this nice courtyard down below, and I'd be in... You know, the apartment, usually by the window, studying, you know, five o'clock at night, trying to study Hebrew or Greek and all of those things. And, and uh, there was a Jewish family that lived on the first floor. They had immigrated from Israel. His name was Baruch, and Baruch was a painter. And every time he'd come home, I could hear the clanging of his, like, paint bucket on his belt with his brushes and other scraping tools, kind of clang, 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 like, here comes Baruch. But the next thing that would happen is out the door would come his daughter, and she would run and saying, Ava, 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 and jump into his arms. That is the delight here. That's the personal delight that's described here. And it says here that he will quiet you with his love. 
Martin Luther says this is the love of a mother's crying child and she holds him. I don't have to remember too far back when I held my kids and they were crying, you know, during the night or whenever. And uh didn't always work this way. But just that sobbing and that sobbing and the crying and finally they just wear themselves out. Parents don't do that anymore. They won't let the kids cry. Oh no, they're crying. No. We pretty much let our kids cry. But then we'd hold them. And they'd sob. And pretty soon they'd breathe, just quietly, and pretty soon their head was just heavy on your chest as you hold them. Children need to be quieted by our love for them. Okay? And we need to be quieted by God's love for us and all the noise and the confusion mixed in with our disobedience and our failures. We need to come back to the gospel and know that Jesus our Savior has paid for our sins and as we come to Him in humility, He forgives us for our sins and He can quiet us with His love. Maybe the most stunning thing here is the fact that he, it says He will rejoice over you with singing. We are not a singing culture any longer. We have earbuds and we listen to music and we listen to our music and what we want to listen to on our playlist whenever we want to. So a lot, I still listen to the radio. It's like, oh yeah, come what may. I'm old-fashioned. Um, but we're not a singing culture so much. Now, now we are in our own subculture of the church. I enjoyed singing hymns with you tonight. And so we are a singing culture as Christians, which is probably related to this passage that our Savior is actually a singing Savior and our God is a singing God. He sings over us. But we're not really a singing culture. The Europeans are. You know, they... they, they uh, Do you ever hear them sing at the World Cup? I mean, they sing during, you know, the, the, the football matches and, you know, the one side's, you know, singing because they're winning, you know. And, and, you know, they sing at the... The golf tournaments, you know, between the Americans and uh, the U.S., they just break into song a lot more easily than we do. We do sing the national anthem, but usually pretty poorly. After 9-11, you could actually hear it, but now it's kind of back to normal. Hardly anybody sings the national anthem. Do you ever sing to a person because you delight in them? Probably not. Probably not. If I started singing to my wife, she'd probably say, uh, please stop and just talk to me. Um, we're more used to seeing it in the movies. The sound of music, you know. I am 16 going on 17. <laughs> or Edelweiss, you know. And here, here the characters on the stage or on the screen, they sort of sing their, they, they, they sing their, their, their love and their affection to someone else. As a parent, we often sing to our kids, but we don't do that to our teenagers or they wouldn't talk to us anymore. Um, Singing is part of God's delight in His children. He loves His children as sons and daughters. We are the prodigal. We are the prodigal and God is is the prodigal God who rejoices in our return and He throws a feast for us and He gets up and He sings His love for us at the feast. That's what the Lord does. 
Have you heard his song? Have you heard the music of the gospel and the good news? Have you heard the song of God's love for you? It wasn't enough for him to say his love. It says here that he sings his love. He puts it into music of joy. Have you heard the music? Have you heard his music? He treats us not according to our 10,000 losses and sins, not according to that. We have a new identity. He treats us as his children, children of a king, a king who won the only victory that we ever really needed. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for your power and your might. We thank you for your presence that you have dared to be with us and draw near. And one day we will be with you and us with you because we'll be completely clean and healed. We thank you for the delight that you take in us as children. Um, and the joy that you find in us, we feel so unworthy. We, we, we say to ourselves, amazing love, how, how can that be? That you would have that relationship with us. But that is your gospel, that is your truth. Um, feed us with it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.